My brand new book, Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth, is now available. So much more than a book, this is a guide that allows me to hold your hand through your birth preparation journey. With over a decade of experience and knowledge packed in to ensure you really are empowered in the way you deserve to achieve a positive birth, regardless of the twists and turns that crop up. Make sure that you get your hands on Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth Book now and are empowered to have the birth experience that you deserve. Hello, I'm Pip and welcome to the Midwife Pip podcast. Part of my mission in ensuring your pregnancy, birth and motherhood journeys are supported, positive and empowering. Are you ready? Let's get chatting. I'm sure that this is not the first time you've heard of tongue tie, a condition affecting around 5% of newborns and commonly causing great infant feeding difficulties. So how can we get a step ahead to prevent tongue tie from causing us additional difficulty in the early days, weeks and months of newborn life? I am joined today by Lisa, an international board certified lactation consultant and nurse midwife in private practice. Her lactation practice is concentrated on the issue of tongue tie, but she's also educated in functional medicine and works with those struggling with hormonal, thyroid, milk or fertility concerns. <coughs> That's my COVID cough. Lisa worked for 28 years at Stanton Island University Hospital before establishing her private practice in 2015. At the hospital, she co-founded and coordinated the Breastfeeding Initiative and worked in collaboration with the NYC Department of Health for eight years on efforts towards achieving the important baby-friendly designation. Currently managing the Tongue Tie Experts brand on Facebook and Instagram, providing education to parents and professionals, and producing the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Lisa loves to lecture and educate the world on the importance of breastfeeding for the health of infants and the developing airway. So welcome, Lisa, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's always exciting to reach new audiences, especially in new places, right? We're very far away from each other. But I always like to bring it back to the fact that um, breastfeeding, parenthood is universal. And so many aspects of what we experience are the same. No matter what culture you're in, no matter where you are, we have the same types of struggles, right? Different, different shades of them, but basically the same types of struggles. And um, as you were introducing me, I just wanted to say, you ever get tired listening to your bio? I'm like, wow, I did all that? How could I, that <laughs> How could I be that old? No. <laughs> or just that experience, right? How can yeah, you be that I've wise and experienced? And yeah. actually, Lisa, it's brilliant that we can um, have a conversation in this way, because as everyone is probably hearing from my voice and my cough throughout your, your bio is I'm currently suffering a little bit with COVID. So yeah. this is the beauty, isn't it, of being able to reach yeah. out, you know, you're in the States, I'm in the UK, we're, we've navigated different time zones, but we can mm -hmm. still get together 
and spread education information, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And two midwives chatting. It doesn't, that's just the best, isn't it? We just need like a cup of tea and a good old slice of cake and we'd be away. We could be here for hours. (laughs) Sounds good, sounds good. And then, you know, another thing that you you talk about, um, you mentioned 5% of infants. And that's such a curious number because nobody really can pin it down. You know, there are a couple of, um, there are a couple of studies where that number is played around with. um, But, we're not sure because those of us who work with um, families that are having breastfeeding challenges see much more than 5%. Yeah. But our view is skewed because I'm not seeing the babies that aren't having any problems. I'm only seeing the ones who are. So it, it's really, you know, it seems to be a rising number um, and 5% may be low, but that's a good place to start. I just, stuck on that number. And I was like, I have to mention that it might be more than that. It might be more than that. Yeah. And also, I think it's probably one of those things that often goes unreported a bit like we talk about mental health statistics in the same way, don't we? Like they're the ones that we pick up, they get diagnosed and then put into those statistics. But I wonder how many parents infant feeding journeys are complicated or perhaps breastfeeding is cut short by an undiagnosed tongue tie, because I bet that is, you know, hundreds of thousands. Absolutely. And um, I know here in the United States, um, the best person to see when you're having breastfeeding difficulties is an IBCLC such as myself. And most families don't see an IBCLC. It's not routine. It's not generally recommended by all pediatricians. There are some great pediatricians who do refer, but it's actually sadly rare. Mm. So the... um, the number of people who actually get a thorough and functional assessment, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about what that means, um, is low. And because of that, when I, I, I feel it's very important not to just, to, I don't just educate lactation consultants about this. I think it's important for every member of the team to learn what are the signs and symptoms of tongue tie in a newborn, in the parents, in the feeding, because most will quit before they see an IBCLC. And then later light bulbs will go off if they hear about tongue tie. So hopefully this conversation we have today will be helping people who wouldn't have thought to reach out to an IBCLC. Yeah, hundred percent. And what you said in terms of people that reach out and have that specialist input, is very similar in the UK. It's also yeah. something that needs to be sought usually privately um, mm-hmm. and isn't, you know, shouted from the rooftops. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, again, if it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? That I'm always frustrated in a way that when I work with pregnant women or expectant parents, we hear this term all the time, if I can breastfeed. Right. And I feel like, why, why are we already putting doubt on ourselves? There is mm-hmm. expert support there. And I feel like instead we should say, if I have challenges breastfeeding, if there are some twists and turns or some bumps in the road, then I'm going to see this person and then I know I'll be able to breastfeed successfully. We really need to switch up our thought processes early on, I think. Yeah. And I think that also we're very afraid to make goals for ourselves. If we haven't had the experience of knowing other people who are successful. Mm. So that term, it takes a village 
Um, I like to say it takes a family. And if you haven't been in a family of breastfeeders, it's very difficult to imagine yourself feeding your baby in a way you've never seen a baby being fed. Mm. So I know I was the first in my family to breastfeed. And that was a challenge. Um, and I, I love, I like to share that I failed the first two times. I have three babies, I, I babies, they're grown up now, but I <laughs> failed the first two times, literally failed. And that's kind of what brings me to what I do because I learned what I did wrong or what I didn't do or what I could have done to fix things after the fact. And then went on, had a successful breastfeeding relationship with my third child. So, but it was not my culture to breastfeed, you know? So it, it was very, um, it was very challenging to be supported. And we're going back. My oldest is 31. Well, so you we're say going we're going back, back, but actually I yeah. was exactly the same, Lisa. So um, my husband's family was very breastfeeding. It was really normal to them. So that was brilliant support because although they're not near, it meant that for my husband, this was just a very normal thing that we were going to do. For, mm-hmm. for my family, they're very much sort of from a culture of bottle feeding. So for them, it was very different. And and I remember saying, and I've spoken about this, I think on the podcast before, that about three, four days in, if I wasn't a midwife, that would have been it. I would have stopped breastfeeding. If I didn't have that knowledge and understanding, then I definitely would have stopped. I know I would have. Um, and that's why we do what we do, isn't it? It's why we, why we educate. So I think there's still those challenges out there for sure. Mm-hmm, exactly. And um, I also know that at least in the United States, most healthcare providers don't get enough breastfeeding education and certainly not enough tongue tie education, Mm -hmm. which is why, you know, I find it vital to be spreading the word about this. So um, what I also like to think about is um, that most, most parents I know who stop breastfeeding do so because of pain, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, not a lot. It's it's one of the biggest obstacles to having a successful breastfeeding relationship. So anybody who has pain with breastfeeding should deserve an evaluation by an expert in breastfeeding, right? Somebody who can show or see what's going on there, why there's pain. And a lot of the times when there's pain, there is an oral restriction such such as a tongue tie, a lip tie. Um, so that's, you know, the biggest red flag and the biggest, um, way we could increase breastfeeding rates, I believe is by just using that one sign and symptom that if there is pain that you should reach out for help. And if the healthcare provider that, that you're seeing isn't giving you the right help, not to give up, but to reach beyond and find a healthcare provider who will support you. Because as a midwife myself, as a nurse, cause I was an RN before, registered nurse before, I learned so little about how to support breastfeeding. We learned that it's important. We learned why it's important, but we didn't learn how to manage the challenges. So, so even before, before I became a lactation consultant, even in my midwifery practice, and I apologize and I have apologized publicly to the people that I didn't give the right support to before I had a full understanding and education of what lactation support should look like. Mm, Yeah, I think that's a really valuable point, isn't it? And that's why there is specialists in those fields. And I love the fact that your interest in this subject has obviously come from something very close to your heart and, and your own experiences. Now, Lisa, I wonder if you could just 
take us back to basics for anyone listening who's thinking, what on earth are you talking about? What actually is a tongue tie? What is the definition? Okay, I love this. So I like to use functional definitions, meaning how something works rather than what it looks like, right? So we have frenum or attachments. Frenum are or are called um, frenum or frenulum, depending on where you see it, but it means the same thing. And they're attachments of tissue that hold structures in place and they are normal. So we have a frenum under the tongue. We could have frenums in our cheeks. We could have frenums here, here, other places around the mouth. And there's other frenum in the body too, but we're just talking about the, the mouth today. So when the frenum under the tongue or under the lip is too tight or attached in a wrong place and it prevents functional movement, then we refer to it as a tie. So in other words, if you have a lip tie, if you have a frenum here that's so tight or attached where the gums wrap around and the mouth can't, the lips can't open and they can't flange. You ever see babies that have, and I even have a very flat lip because I used to have a, a lip tie um, for those who are looking on, on video, a very turned in kind of lip. It can prevent the mouth from opening completely in the latch, which can cause a lot of pain, right? So when it's under the tongue, it prevents the tongue from lifting and the, the tongue when for breastfeeding needs to lift and move in a, in a wave-like pattern with the mouth staying open. So if you think about the frenum holding, the frenum that holds the tongue very close to the bottom of the mouth, when the mouth opens, the jaw comes with it and closes the mouth into that small, narrow latch. So lots of babies, you've, you've probably heard the term, oh, the baby has a small mouth. Mm. Well, babies don't have small mouths. They just can't <laughs> open them wide while they're trying to latch. And then if you go further with these definitions, um, it's not just about looking at it because sometimes when we look at a frenum under the tongue, it can look tight, but sometimes those frenums that look tight don't prevent movement. And sometimes there's a frenum that you can barely see, but it's hard for the tongue to move. So there are different types of restrictions and different degrees that don't always correspond to what they look like, which makes this a little challenging. So if anybody follows me, they won't see any pictures, barely any pictures, unless I'm trying to illustrate something on my any of my social media, because I don't feel like it's good to say, here's my baby, is this a tongue tie? Because we can't tell, because we don't know what's going on there. So we go with symptoms. Yeah, that's that's a really great way to look at it, actually, because like you say, you often see pictures and you're like, well, my baby doesn't look like that. So it must must be that it hasn't got right. a tongue tie. There's right. something else going on. But actually, right. you then right. missed a potential diagnosis. Yeah. So when yeah. we think about detecting tongue ties, how are they detected, Lisa? What, what would you do in your practice? So I have a, a list of symptoms that I go through and I consider three different aspects. So I consider the the parent, the baby, and the feeding separately. And then I look at those, the symptoms of those three aspects of the total. So we're looking really holistically. And with a baby that could be, some babies don't latch at all. They do not know how to get onto the nipple and they may have trouble getting on, but then have trouble actually extracting milk. 
Um, they may even have difficulty with a bottle, right? So this is not necessarily just about breastfeeding. Some babies are so restricted that they can't make the motions to take milk from a bottle either. And there are some babies that do better with breastfeeding than bottle feeding. Mm -hmm. Those babies that you hear like, oh, I'm going back to work and I'm trying to introduce a bottle and the baby won't take a bottle. Often that's a tie, believe it or not. So difficulty latching. Um, symptoms we see on the baby, blistered lips, that those, those lips that are tucked in will blister from this, the pressure of being held so tight around the nipple for the latch. Um, sometimes babies can take a lot in um, and sometimes they can't. So sometimes we'll have an, uh, um, lack of proper growth, lack of weight gain. Um, a baby who eats seemingly all the time and never seems satisfied could be not really being able to extract milk, even though it appears that they're feeding often. Um, I have so many babies that come to me whose parents tell me that they are gassy, right? And by gassy, is I'm not sure if that translates. Yeah, to yeah. Terms. Windy, we sometimes say. Windy, yes. We know what you mean. Or crying all the time because of that gas or wind. Mm, that kind of but, it's that digestive I, discomfort, isn't it? You can tell yes. when that baby's crying because of that. Yeah. So that could be truly digestive discomfort from swallowing air because babies with oral restrictions who don't latch correctly can swallow air while they're feeding. But often, sadly, it's hunger. And the parents think the baby ate because the baby was at the breast for a long time. Take the baby off. The baby falls asleep because they're exhausted from trying to feed. Baby will fall asleep and then wake up five minutes later. Mm. And they interpret that as gassiness or fussiness or colic. But it's really that the baby didn't gain enough, didn't get enough to, to satisfy them. Right. And then in long term, that will be a baby who doesn't gain enough. But waking some babies with tongue tie do fine. So that's not the that's not a parameter to, you know, hang your hat on. Some babies with weight gain weight and can still have a tie. Reflux or spitting up could be caused by a tongue tie. That doesn't mean that all babies who spit up have a tongue tie, but it's definitely something to be evaluated for. Um, and then when we look at parents, we want obviously pain, um, nipples that are flattened or blanched or whitened after um, feeding. I actually believe that vasospasm or Raynaud's that we blame, we blame pain on Raynaud's. A lot of that has to do with tongue tie um, undiagnosed. Um, I don't really think the incidence of Raynaud's is as great as we think, or that nipple spasm that some, be, some parents get. Uh, what else? Milk not coming in in the very beginning, right? Because the baby's not extracting the milk. The baby's not suckling correctly. Um, and then when we get to the feeding, you know, as we talked about the baby feeding all the time, um, but sometimes it's a baby that feeds all the time and gains a lot because they, they are feeding in a way, and this, this is a controversial thought. A lot of, a lot of what, I, what I preach is based on fact. This is my theory. Some moms seem to get oversupply when a baby has tongue tie. 
And baby literally just has to catch the milk. It's like drinking from a water fountain. They don't have to work hard because they can't. And for some reason, the parent's body compensates and makes an oversupply. So I see, I see both lack of milk supply and oversupply. Mm, that's really interesting then. And I suppose, I mean, I think we should just never underestimate how intuitive our bodies are to our babies mm-hmm. um, but also if you've got a baby that's constantly feeding but not really extracting milk then I guess that is again it's still stimulation to the breast isn't it that is gonna mm-hmm. sort of your body's gonna be tricked slightly right. although it's not emptying the breast it's gonna be tricked uh, into thinking there's another feed there's another feed there's yeah another. yeah and you might want to keep that in mind for um parents in your care um families in your care who are like around four or five months some people say it's three to four three to four or four to five, when the milk supply goes from being hormonally driven to more of a, if you don't with, if you don't take it out, it, it goes away. So that period where the switch turns, um, I often see a drop of milk supply. So I have people that come to me for help around that time saying, I had all this milk and all of a sudden it feels like the baby isn't getting anything. Right. And that could be because the baby isn't really understanding or able to extract milk efficiently because they have an oral restriction or something else. Now, sometimes all of these problems, you know, it's not always tongue tie. There's sometimes, you know, and in my office, this happens pretty often where it, it might be a frenum that's restricted, but you know, as we talked before about some parents never seen anybody else nurse a baby and they don't know how to hold the baby or a little tweak in the in the positioning of the baby and things get better. Or perhaps it was a traumatic birth and baby's got some cervical tightness or tightness in one shoulder more than the other. And they have difficulty turning their head and getting into positions that allow effective breastfeeding. And that so sometimes it's not actually the frenum, even though we can see a frenum, we have other things to take care of. This isn't just about the frenum. I like to look at it in a holistic approach and say, well, what else is going on for this baby, this family, you know, and what, what, what could we do to, to tweak things, to try to optimize everything without considering doing anything under the tongue. Yeah, and that's, that's important, isn't it? Because breastfeeding, yeah. infant feeding is so multidirectional, isn't it? We can't just... Yeah you know, focus purely on one thing. But I think it's important to Mm -hmm. understand all those parts of the puzzle. And and as you Mm -hmm. said, absolutely, tongue time may be one of those kind of parts. Mm -hmm. So Lisa, talk us through, if we have identified a tongue tie, do they always need treatment? And what does treatment look like? So I feel like it always needs some sort of treatment, but we have to decide what it looks like depending on what's going on. And um, I have a very popular post and it was very controversial as always. like controversial. (laughs) Um, Tongue tie treatment is rarely an emergency, right? So what I meant by that is it's important to step back, not just run to get the frenum cut because that's going to also give us, give this field bad press because what if it wasn't the frenum that was causing the problem, right? Yeah. So a well-meaning pediatrician who learns to 
assess or, you know, in your country, it may be a little bit different who the baby's seeing, right? A health visitor, right? You have different systems going on. Yeah. So it could um, be a pediatrician. It could be a midwife, could be the health visitor that. that right. Right. Them. Looks and says, it looks like this baby has a tongue tie, but if they're not doing a thorough assessment of the breastfeeding, it may be that mom is having a milk supply issue. Right. So we fix the tongue tie. We free it by having the procedure, but mom still has no milk. So breastfeeding still isn't going to work. So that will give a bad name. Those are the stories you hear of got the baby's tongue tie fixed and I still he's not gaining or still he's not nursing. So we want to be very careful who we select for phrenotomy. Right. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure we're not doing any unnecessary procedures. I mean, as midwives, we don't like intervention, right? <laughs> so we want to make sure that if we are intervening in a way, especially surgically, that it's, it's needed. So the first thing I always recommend after good lactation care and supporting mom's milk supply and all that goes into that is body work for the baby, whether it be infant chiropractic or an osteopath or craniosacral therapy or infant massage, occupational therapists who know, whatever whatever um, is available and amenable to the family and affordable and can be done. And there are different experts all over the world who understand how the tightness of the oral frenum can affect the tightness of the whole body. So we want to find someone who can work with that and work on the baby and sometimes work on the mom as well, because there's tension patterns there too. And see if we can get things to relax. See if we get can get baby's mouth to open more, maybe release that frenum in a way, meaning, you know, if the neck is tight, the whole chin and under the, under the tongue will be pulled back. So if we can release that and allow the baby freer movement and more relaxation, breastfeeding may improve on its own. Right. And then the other thing that's great about the bodywork aspect of it is I see that babies who have bodywork prior to the release have more successful outcomes, meaning more symptoms go away and less chance of reattachment. And that's so, the important thing, actually, that you just yeah. mentioned there, reattachment, mm-hmm. because I've only mm-hmm. recently, really in the last maybe year or so, learned that actually tongue ties can reattach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can. So you want to optimize things. And then the other important aspect of the whole procedure and the whole treatment plan is education, right? So I never want a family to feel like they went into having some kind of procedure for their baby and they didn't know completely why they were doing it and what's going on, you know, and what to expect and what that night is going to be and what type of analgesia that baby may need and what is the follow-up going to be and, and so on. So education is key. And um, I actually have a course for parents and it's very affordable. Um, that gives like what I would tell the patients who come to me in my office, instead of repeating myself over and over, I made a, a course that is all about the different aspects and goes into detail, how to be sure it's a tongue tie, how to prepare for that day, how to find a great provider for the procedure, because not everybody is skilled in the same way. So there's questions to ask a provider and how, what to expect that night, what to have ready beforehand. I even go into like, have your meals ready. 
right? Because you don't want to be coming home from a procedure with a baby and then trying to figure out what you're going to eat, right? Have babysitter for the other kids, like really, really into detail of how to prepare. Because if you're prepared, then it'll feel smoother for you. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that when, you know, parents and babies feed off each other's energy, especially a breastfeeding dyad. So if mom is very tense and upset, baby's going to be very tense and upset. And that's just going to escalate. And it's not going to help baby to be feeding that evening after the procedure. Gosh, our our hormones and our emotions are so, so interconnected with our babies. (laughs) Like, Without a doubt, we can't consider one without mm. without the other. That I think goes exactly. goes for sure. Um, so if we if we are thinking about that tongue tie separation, what what does that procedure look like, Lisa? What can parents sort of expect or start to visualize if mm. that's something that may be recommended? So yeah, as part of a package of support, of course, as you said. Yeah. So so what what it is here in the United States, in you know, there's the best person to find for this procedure is a pediatric dentist. I'm not sure if where you are, pediatric dentists are doing the procedure. I prefer a laser procedure if that's available. Um, So pediatric dentists who are skilled in laser and have experience. However, it's not so important the tool that's used as the skill of the provider. Mm -hmm. So you want to find someone who does this all the time. You don't want to be convincing someone to do it. So if you go to a pediatrician and they say, I can do this for you, but I don't think the baby needs it. You don't want that pediatrician to be the one doing the procedure Mm -hmm. because they're not going to understand how to release it completely, how which structures are safe to cut and which aren't. In the right hands, this procedure is about 10 seconds. It does not take long and it could be done with a scissor in a skilled provider's hand or the laser, as I spoke about. And then after the procedure and hopefully that that provider uses a numbing medication, something for the baby. This does not require general anesthesia in an, in an infant at all, just something to numb them. And then having something ready or given right before for pain, depending on you know, and I, I'm, I don't like making recommendations for medications, but there are analgesic medications that are safe for infants. Um, I like to use homeopathy in my practice and I recommend homeopathic tinctures, much like a teething tincture is what the baby needs because they're going to be sore for a few days. Mm. And then hopefully you've had guidance before the procedure to do some exercises to get the tongue moving again, because it's not just about releasing the tongue. Now that tongue needs to learn to move again. So there are potentially for the first time, right? If this is a tiny newborn and their tongues never, you know, move properly, that's a whole, that's a whole new skill, right? Exactly. And that's why this isn't something that is, it's not typically something that improvement is seen immediately because Immediately, that baby's been through a little bit of trauma. I mean, it's quick, but it's still traumatic. And now the mouth feels different to them and they have to learn to use it. And most infants, especially if they're very young, learn very quickly. It's not, it doesn't take too long, but you may have a couple of days or a couple of feedings that are off. Then things seem to improve and they, you may have some bumps along the way, much like a roller coaster ride up and down. That just sounds like motherhood, Lisa. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. So, yeah. So, um, 
But that night, sometimes the baby's a little grumpy. And um, I like to suggest like low lights and maybe a bath with mama and baby, um, you know, candlelit if safe, you know, just to keep things quiet and calm and downregulate the nervous system. And having a an alternative method of feeding if the baby will not latch. And that can be, can look like different things for depending on the baby. I mean, it might be some milk in a syringe. It might be a bottle. It might be a spoon or a cup feeding, depending on the age and the, and what's going on for that baby, you know? Um, but most babies do fine after. Most babies do latch that night. But what I do find is usually right after the procedure, they latch. And then when, when everyone goes home and starts settling in and it's time for the next feeding, that's when there's maximum discomfort and the baby starts like having to reintegrate how to use that tongue at that next feeding. Because the first feeding, they may, may be a little bit numb, a little bit disoriented, and they just instinctually latch. And then they start thinking about it a little bit later on. It's a bit like when they're first born, isn't it? Within that first yeah, that, an hour, they feed beautifully. And then four exactly. hours later, you're like, how do I get this baby to latch? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Start thinking too much about it, right? That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Lisa, that was really yeah. helpful, actually, I think, for parents listening to to understand that. I think I think your key point, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that tongue-tie correction can be a really, really useful treatment, but it really shouldn't be a standalone treatment. We need that holistic package of support kind of haloing around that really to, to make sure that, you know, that latch, that supplies maintained because that's really important, isn't yeah. it? If you, if you plan to exclusively breastfeed your baby and a tongue tie is interfering with that, it's really important you've got support there to maintain your milk supply and you know how to correctly do that both day and nighttime while you wait to get your your baby latched and attached properly because otherwise like you say you you correct the tongue tie and then the milk isn't there for the baby to feed from Mm -hmm. anyway yes yeah i say that all the time you know the most important thing we can do and when when a when a mom calls me and she says i've been trying to get my baby to latch and he won't latch um, but i've been pumping i tell her that you've you've won the lottery if you're Mm -hmm. pumping and have milk we can fix the latch. Yeah, but there's no time pressure. Miss, yeah, if you missed building that supply, then it's harder to go back and do that. So, you know, a shout from the rooftops for everyone listening. If you ever told that you need to supplement your baby or you feel like you need to supplement your baby and you want to continue breastfeeding, for every bottle that you give, please pump. <laughs> please pump there, there's a little bit of a myth going around about um a, you shouldn't pump before insert a time three to four weeks four to six weeks but that's if everything's going well yeah right? that's the thing isn't it right if you if everything's yeah. going well and you're just right. focusing on that learning that skill that's different right. there's a complication and you need to supplement right. right and then i also recognize that a lot of what we're talking about works for those of us who are fortunate enough to be in situations where we have this type of support. We have these types of providers, the economic ability to have the the care that we're talking about today. And also not having the additional pressures of having to go back to work sooner than you're supposed to, which happens a lot here, Mm. Um, you know, having things ideal. And I do recognize that 
not everybody is that fortunate. And um, I will also say that there are providers like myself who will definitely um, give some courtesy to those who I know need my extra help. You know, prices drop, things change. Um, you know, even my educational courses are, you know, like I said, they're they're very reasonable. But if it's a parent who has no other way to learn about this stuff, and they reach out to me, I'm not going to charge them. You know, I I think it's 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 almost like a mission based at this point to help those who can't get the help that they need and they deserve, because. You know, this can be a pricey kind of path, you know, especially yeah, if you're going to different types of providers and trying to get the answers and you're not getting them, you know. I think we also have to weigh, weigh it up for those who are sort of thinking, oh, you know, that that investment is, is perhaps affordable, but just isn't ideal, perhaps. Mm-hmm formula Mm -hmm. isn't cheap either right equipment Mm -hmm. isn't cheap so you've got that Mm -hmm. ongoing cost so sometimes investing in that education that assessment that support potentially is going to save you quite a lot in the long run and that's just something to think about when you're when you're balancing up your options I think also you know this isn't just about breastfeeding that's the that's the other aspect of tongue tie that gets missed very often um we talked about functional movement of the mouth. So when we're talking about breastfeeding and tongue tie, the function we're talking about is breastfeeding because that's the first function. The first function that a human infant needs to perform is suck, swallow, breathe for survival. If, if this isn't taken care of and there are severe restrictions in the mouth that prevent functional movement, that could also be a sign that other functions aren't going to work down the line efficiently, right? So without scaring people, I'm not saying that everybody who has an untreated tongue tie will have problems. However, the you know other things that could be is speech problems before that even, problems with a bottle, problems with solids, um, problems with certain textures of solids, being able to, you know, for a child, it's about suck, swallow, breathe in a different way. Now it's chew, swallow, and breathe without choking, right? Um, So there's lots of kids out there who have, you know, been not diagnosed or or, are being called like fussy eaters. And it's actually because they can't handle that texture of food. Um, And then further down the line, or sometimes it starts earlier, sleep disordered breathing, because if the tongue doesn't reach up to the top of the mouth because it's restricted, it shapes, the tongue shapes the palate, the top of the mouth. And the top of the mouth is the bottom of the sinus cavity. So you can have a very high palate, which gives you a very narrow breathing area. So that can lead to breathing problems, snoring, um, sleep apnea in older people, or even unfortunately, sometimes in kids, you know, which is now being associated with and connected to behavioral problems like ADHD in kids. So this could be, you know, this could be something that you want to think about potential problems. Now, I would never say, first of all, that every child with a tongue tie is going to have those problems, or that we should ever fix something without 
without having symptoms of what's going on now. So if a kid is doing fine, we don't want to say, well, oh yeah, but it looks like a tongue tie. So we better fix it. So they don't have blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm saying, but it's an awareness that we have to start to have that this is not just about breastfeeding. That's a good point. Actually, it's the, it's the short and, and the long term, isn't it? And things just to be, mm-hmm. just keep in the back of your mind, just to be aware of mm-hmm. if tongue tie has cropped up in your postnatal journey. Lisa, yeah. you are full of wisdom and I could talk to you <laughs> all day about everything because we're midwives and midwives chat. Yeah. It's just part of, part of what's yeah. in our blood, I think. But I wonder if you could just round us off with three top tips to perhaps oh new or expectant parents that are concerned about tongue tie or perhaps actually in the depths of navigating tongue tie themselves. Yes. Um, I think the number one thing I would say is get as much education as you can. Actually, if you can prior to prior to having the baby, get as much education as you can. Um, find yourself a lactation consultant. Again, if possible, before the baby comes, mm. develop a relationship with a lactation consultant that you learn about breastfeeding from so that when you have challenges, you have someone to reach out to. Um, and number three, I would say specifically for tongue tie, know that it is a journey. Um, it's, a, it's a journey. Realize that you're doing your best and reach out for help, education, and support from others who have been through it because you'll feel you'll feel like you're alone in this and there's so many families who have been through it and don't give up on your worst day that's my that's always that's my favorite breastfeeding advice is never quit on your worst day because then you'll regret it and and have you don't want to ever look back with regret and say, I wish I had done such and such, right? Always, always look for a little bit more help and be gentle on yourself. Oh, I love that. What a beautiful way to finish. Lisa, thank you so much. I'm still super impressed that we managed to navigate time zones and COVID and yes. all of that to get this recorded. Yes. So thank you and so I much. hope you're feeling better soon. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> thank you so much, Lisa. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I'd be hugely grateful if you could take a moment to leave a quick review. It honestly means the world to me to hear from you as a listener. And of course, to ensure you don't miss upcoming episodes, hit subscribe too. Remember, I'm here to support you through pregnancy, birth and beyond through my range of pregnancy, birth prep and postpartum courses at midwifepip.com. I hope to get to know you better and to help you on your empowering journey soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.